Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. And welcome to Have We Got Planning News For You, the final episode of our, our current series. I uh, hope you're having a lovely afternoon in the uh, much belated sunshine that we're finally getting uh, today. Welcome, as always, to our YouTube viewers. Please don't forget to subscribe to our channel for extra content and uh, updates. And please, of course, uh, consider making a charity donation in place of registration fee, as you know by now. We support NHS charities together and shelter, but also very happy for you to make a donation to a charity of your choice if you so prefer. Now, we're delighted to have with us this evening um, Jenny Daly. Jenny, welcome. Uh, Group Operations Director at Taylor Wimpy, Non-Executive Director at Peabody, one of, if not the most successful women in the development sector and an inspiration to many of the comments on LinkedIn about and, and very telling. Um, so we're thrilled to have you on the show. Um, can you tell us, Jenny, where you're calling from? Um, what theme have you chosen for us uh, this evening? Uh, and what, if anything, are you drinking? Oh, okay. Um, so I'm calling from my family home, which is in Cheshire. Um, and the theme is Derry, which is my hometown. So hence the Gaelic shirt, the, uh, Oak Grove. Um, and unfortunately, because I had a bit of a nightmare um, accessing, I'm drinking fruit tea. Uh, <laughs> which wouldn't have been my choice <laughs> <laughs> very sensible well thank you so much as always we'll be doing our discussion with you in the second half of the show which mary is going to lead if there's anything we talk about in the first half do by all means chip in and provide your comments but obviously no obligation as we as we always say to our to our guests um now time to introduce the panel and as always uh mary first how you do you're in the office mary no i'm actually in manchester, manchester. i'm in the I'm in the offices of WSP in First Street in Manchester doing a local plan examination, which the lovely Paul has also been involved in. Um, so it's a joy to be somewhere new and exciting. And uh, I am drinking water, I'm afraid, because I've literally left one room and left at one examination. Um, and I'm not doing so well in terms of the uh, Irish uh, connection, Jenny, this week, but I have been looking up um, who in, in the music industry has come from your hometown. And I'm delighted to say I've discovered that Fergal Sharkey uh, is a Derry boy, uh, as is Neil Hannon um, from the Divine Comedy. So I'm, I'm thinking of them as, as my way of participating with the Derry theme. Well done, Mary. <laughs> Thank you. Fantastic, Mary. Uh, Chris, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, I'm in Chambers doing um, an inquiry for a site in Sussex. I'm in our London Chambers with Seanad uh, Davis as my junior. We went out for dinner last night. It was all very pleasant uh, as a team. And um, yes, I too have struggled a little bit in central London with being able to find anything Irish. Um, but I sent my junior out <laughs> half an hour ago and she got a full pack of Guinness. <laughs> so if I have all of that, I'm going to be great fun by the time we get to the end. It doesn't travel, of course. I did look up some food, though, in the hope that I might be able to find some. I've discovered the Ulster Fry, the power of the Ulster Fry, and the 15s, which look like kind of rocky roads, but I couldn't get any. Uh, so, yeah, there's none of that in London, I'm afraid. <laughs> Um, Paul, you look totally disinterested in, dis disinterested in this week's subject matter. <laughs> well, I've even got an exercise book to assist. Oh, I can't even show you. There you go. How about that? Yeah. Which yeah. is from um, Our Lady Immaculate College, Derry, which is where this particular series is filmed, which is my family's favourite show uh, at the moment. And uh, 
haven't put it on, but I was going to wear this, which is obviously the, one of the All Island rugby shirts. So I'll, I'll maybe wear that later on. So fault you, Jenny. Fantastic. Drinking anything tonight, Paul? Or big? Uh, I like Mary. I've I've got I've got uh, uh, other things on at the moment, so no. So it's just water <laughs> for me. It'll be the Guinness later. I hear, I hear tea is the drink of choice at your your examination this week. But... <laughs> anyway, um, whatever that make the YouTube catch. Um, Sasha, how are you, mate? I'm very well. I'm very well. I'm in London and I'm um, having told Jenny it was all very casual. Look at us all very smart doing various <laughs> inquiries. So I'm sorry, Jenny, that the message, <laughs> unfortunately, I haven't quite risked wearing, um, not wearing formal clothes at inquiry yet. Um, although yeah, I did have a witness last week who insisted on wearing his hat throughout his evidence, which was slightly novel, <laughs> but there we go. Um, um, and I'm drinking tea, I'm afraid, but I'm going to salute with tea my Dublin-born grandfather with the theme of Ireland today. Fantastic, Sasha. Well, Charlie Badder here for Keith James. I'm at home today uh, in, in South Kensington. In fact, I've been, I'm not a little while, I've been scruffy, but I've been a piece of written work for none other than Tony Wimpy today. So there we go. I went for a run this afternoon and um, collided into Jose Mourinho as well, which was rather funny and nearly knocked him over, <laughs> which was rather strange for, for both of us in different ways. Um, and um, I'm making up for you, Mary, because I'm actually having a gin and tonic today, given it's... Oh, well done, well done. I was going to say, if you bumped into him, that could have turned out to be a very expensive personal injury. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I literally, literally turned the corner running and, and not, nearly knocked him over. And I have got here, it's actually not from Delhi, it's Belfast, the dairy story from this. So Tatiana, my wife, is a big tea drinker. And I'm called for Northern Irish Bar, so every now and then I do some planning work over there. And I've actually done an aquarium in Derry for the council, I think it must have been eight or so years ago, for a large development, and spent two weeks there. It was absolutely fabulous. And um, uh, got picked up a car, Belfast City Airport, drove via the Giants Causeway, stopped off, went, went climbed the Giants Causeway wearing leather, black leather church shoes, shoes, which was rather ridiculous because I was in my suit ready for a client con, and then had a week at the Derry City Hotel. Um, uh, a great running course over the beautiful the bridge they put up for the the peace bridge yeah, the peace bridge which is actually stunning um, and on the way back at Belfast City Airport I felt like I needed to buy a souvenir and I'd forgotten to buy a souvenir in Derry so at the airport I got this thing for Tatiana <laughs> so hence that's the Derry Derry connection so I remember I remember my time there it was lovely it was weather like this best time of year an absolutely stunning uh, stunning week so I, I enjoyed it very much um, so um, that's all our intro so let's on to the serious stuff and um, Sasha you're going to kick us off with the Mulberry Tree Case I am yeah I know I feel like I now know I'm welcome to PT's world summarising cases that really are changing the axis of the way we live I'm dealing with a mulberry tree in the delights of Tower Hamlets which I have, have just spent the earlier part of the week in in Westry too but um, yeah I'm dealing with a a mulberry tree now let me before i get onto the specifics i do have a serious point to make for all those that watch us um we did have a trend some years ago and jenny will remember it when people went after es's there's a new trend which mary will also touch on in kinsey and there is a new trend which is going after the status and the ability to see consultation responses and that's half the theme. Our lovely dear Richard Harwood, who we all love and adore, is leading claimants via Harrison Grant. And there are two challenges of this nature, challenging the way planning officers report deal with consultation responses. And they're one of the issues also in this case, the specific ground that got home was in relation to a mulberry tree, which was an ancient and a veteran tree, which was going to be effectively uh, moved and of course there was a major debate about what would be the consequences of moving it generally I don't think it's in the arboricultural handbook to move mulberry trees distance but of course the argument was that it would survive now 175c which all four of you would be able to recite unquestionably and Jenny would because it's engraved on one's heart the MPPF requires in order to do this exercise you have to have wholly exceptional reasons and a suitable compensation strategy existing. And what was said to members wasn't quite right, um, is because what was members' references were that, that there would be wholly exceptional circumstances, including the compensation strategy. 
So note the difference. My goodness, sometimes us lawyers are balls aching, aren't we? But that is the point. That <laughs> Speak <is made>. for yourself. <laughs> because, and well, actually, uh, Mr. Justice Usley found it for me. I mean, he was happy with it. He took the view that, frankly, because the wholly exceptional circumstances included the compensation strategy, rather than, as we recall, 157, sorry, 175C requiring wholly exceptional reasons and are suitable because they'd effectively conflated the two. That wasn't a correct characterization of the MPPF. And it was the members were advised effectively that 175C was um, met. And the judge took the view that effectively there was a misinterpretation. Members were wrongly advised on this critical element. And Mr. Justice Usley again took the view that effectively they were they could have reached a different decision if so correctly advised. So the takeaway is, and I know often we say to clients, and Jenny has heard us all say, you know, get get people like us to look at planning officers' report in the light of Juden and the Tower Hamlets London Borough. It is absolutely right because this error in characterising one seven five C led to the quashing. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Sasha. It's funny how planning sometimes reaches, uh, parts, planning stories reach parts of the world you wouldn't expect. And a very good friend of mine who lives in West Virginia WhatsApped me the other day saying, was this case one of yours? And apparently it was on his nas the national news in America, mm. uh, this mulberry tree. So it's a strange old world. Now, Paul, um, another London case, Lewisham. Yeah, um, uh, interesting case, Kinsey and uh, Lewisham. Uh, obviously quite a, a prolific litigation family. Decision of Mrs. Justice Lang on the 18th of May, so very recently. Um, this was a decision where uh, there was a quashing of a permission granted by Lewisham, uh, uh, and the proposal was for demolishing uh, a series of 1970s sheltered accommodation, some garages, and their redevelopment by 110 units, part flats, part terraces. Uh, there were six grounds of challenge that, that came before the court. One was abandoned, uh, I think, on the day. Four out of five of them succeeded. Um, so there's consideration of heritage impacts. There's issues about how you treat background papers uh, and also how you deal with design review panels and statement, uh, statements of community interest. The heritage one is pretty well trodden ground. Um, and the conclusion was essentially that the officer's report on the facts of that particular report, which interestingly are appended to the Bailey report of the case, uh, which is quite useful to see, um, gave a, an unweighted balance rather than the weighted balance one, one is meant to have in relation to heritage. I have to say, heritage issues are becoming increasingly complex in terms of how they're reported by officers. And it's becoming one of those areas where, uh, frankly, I thought the Palmer case was going to, going to st st stymie this sort of challenge, but no, uh, we're into the areas of legal complexity, I'm afraid. But one of the issues in this case was how you treated the senior conservation officers' uh, consultation response. Uh, one of the arguments was, well, you didn't have to separately report that because the uh, head of planning was in the same directorate and was essentially putting the point on behalf of all the members of the directorate. And it wasn't a separate consultation the way that uh, it might be if it was from the environment agency or an external body. Well, the court said, no, it's actually quite important to have that as a separate document. And it has also founded big chunks of the officer's report. But there were some deficiencies in relation to how it was reported. Uh, in the officer's report. So that was also a ground of challenge. And it was also uh, concluded that that formed in the in the circumstance of this case, one of the background papers that should have been uh, publicly available. Um, Mr. Justice Lang didn't say that's the case for always uh, for internal consultation responses. She said that that may or may not be the case, but essentially in this case it was because it was so heavily relied upon. And then what, what I think is, a, is an interesting one, which is the statement of, common, statement of community interest, which I keep wanting to call the statement of common ground, sorry, um, said that where there were major developments, they should be referred to the design review panel. And the court said, well, yes, they should have been because that creates a legitimate expectation that major developments would be referred to a design review panel uh, following a, a case called Majid uh, in the Court of Appeal from about 10 years ago. I, I find that a bit odd. There's been previous cases on statements of community involvement, uh, which have said, that there wasn't a legitimate expectation that's being set up because it tends to be a discretionary issue. And it's really a warning sign that authorities should review their SCIs to make sure that there is a residual discretion. But 
frankly, does that mean that the authorities are then bound to refer every major application and they then don't retain that, that inherent discretion? It's all a bit strange in relation to the state of an SCI and perhaps it does require a little bit more uh, statutory review. Uh, so that's the second Kinsey case uh, and uh, I, I won't identify who acted for the interested party. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Well, um, next <laughs> one is um, a case in Fleet where the, the person who acted for the unsuccessfully for the interested party in, in the previous case acted for the successful pennant in this case, one of our, our very own dear members, um, Sasha, who did a great job in the Fleet case. So this is an appeal decision by Harold Stevens um, allowing an appeal by a Church of Retirement Living uh, against Hart District Council relating to a, a 31 unit sheltered housing scheme. Um, now, the reasons for refusal uh, that the authority maintained at the inquiry related principally to townscape and design, in particular, a suggestion that the design of the building uh, would generate harm to local character and that the relevant development plan policies required active frontages on the appeal side, which it was said wasn't provided. And Harold Stevens agreed with the appellant, uh, advocated by Sasha, that there was uh, no merit in, in these charges and the proposed development would be of a high quality design. Now, those parts of the decision are, are largely specific to the facts of the case, so I won't say anything more about them. But what I do want to say more about is um, an aspect of the decision which is potentially of, of pretty wide application and potentially great importance, which is how uh, Harold Stevens summarised and set out the benefits of the appeal scheme at paragraph 70 of the decision. And I think Rob's going to stick that on the screen in a moment. Uh, and I don't normally um, read out uh, paragraphs from the decision uh, that I, I cover in this show, but uh, I'm going to here because I think it's it's so important. So he said the following benefits arise. One, much needed housing for older people. Um, he goes on to say that the council suggests the wait should be tempered for various reasons, but the critical point he thought was the scheme meets the needs of the council and therefore significant weight should be given. Two, development is a PDL, substantial weight. Three, sustainable location, substantial weight. Four, optimum use, moderate weight. Five, 31 market runnings, which is a clear benefit. And there was a five-year supply, so this was a not a five-year supply deficit case, but still substantial weight. Six, um, affordable housing, substantial weight. Seven, releasing under-occupied housing stock because of the nature of sheltered um, units whereby people move in from larger, um, uh, larger accommodation, substantial weight. Uh, all of these are referenced to particular parts of the framework in footnotes. Uh, economic benefits, substantial weight, reference to paragraph 80. Uh, more, I'll come on to that in a moment. Social benefits in relation to specialisation, friendly housing, environmental benefits, uh, moderate weight. Cumulatively, they weigh heavily in favour of the appeal scheme, especially given the critical need for housing for older people, as identified at national and local level. Now, uh, what I think is pretty striking about this passage is, uh, firstly, that it's largely, and dare I say deliberately, expressed in general terms as opposed to terms that are tied specifically to particular facts of the case, like the amount of net gain or the amount of the site that was PDL. And indeed, I've already, within a week of it being issued, I've had cause to rely on it, both in cross-examination and closing, in an inquiry of my own that completed on Monday relating to sheltered housing, um, and it's going in for something else I'm doing um, shortly. Um, secondly, the list of benefits avoids the fairly common habit, it must be said, of of collapsing the benefits into a limited range of headings, instead separates them out into a full list of freestanding points, something I know Chris has, has opined upon um, in, on LinkedIn recently. Uh, and that's uh, that's important in showing the full range of advantages of a development is properly recognised and something which, again, doesn't always happen in decisions or indeed in evidence at inquiries. And thirdly, there's the waiting itself. Uh, and in the recent inquiry I've just done, there was a major issue between the developer and the local authority in relation to almost every claim benefit. And for example, how many times do we hear in relation to economic benefits of housing or specialist development that decisions uh, say, well, this is something that could be achieved on any scheme and therefore gets less weight because it's a generic benefit? Well, note the terms in which Harold Stevens puts it substantial weight by reference to paragraph 80 of the framework, which of course says significant weight should be accorded to the needs to support economic growth and productivity without any qualification that only you only get significant weight if it's unique to this scheme all in all it seems to me that this decision will make it considerably harder for those opposing developments to downplay both the number and the weight of benefits from housing specialist housing development and, and other analogous development um, so um, it's it's manna from heaven certainly for the uh, specialist older persons industry but it seems to me also more broadly for those promoting other housing development in appropriate places, particularly in urban areas. So well done, Sasha. Um, a great, a great result. No doubt, largely in part due to your persuasiveness.
Or in spite. (laughs) And now, now, if we thought about this, we've got a case called Paulsbury and we didn't get Paul to deal with it. We got Chris to do it instead. That was a a miss. But anyway, Chris, tell us about Paulsbury. Well, but I just say well done, Sasha. And also uh, Harold Stevens, about 10 years ago, did a big case. And he was very clear throughout this three month case. He wanted the appellants to set out the benefits and to do exactly what he's done in that case. And and it's all too often the case, isn't it? When we lose a case, you see the benefits sort of merge together. They're together seen as a significant benefit rather than separated out. And in my view, that's wrong. I've got views about that. Anyway, look, everybody wants to hear from Jenny. So, and I do most of all. So I'm going to keep this to a one minute update. Okay, watch this. Um, if Rob, you bring up uh, the case, um, it's in uh, Paulsbury, it's for Rainier and uh, South Northamptonshire Council. It was dismissed. And look at paragraph three. Prior to the opening inquiry, and a direction had been issued that an environmental impact assessment is not required. This is because of the scale of the development. Well, that's a relief, isn't it? On 26 dwellings. I imagine everybody was worrying about that, weren't they? Uh, if we go to um, paragraph six, we can see uh, that there was a five-year supply and they didn't challenge it. And when you've got 26 dwellings, it's difficult to park your tanks on the lawn and challenge all that and turn up. We've been doing it all day to here, but we've got a bigger proposal, 500. Um, Now, the main issue, whether the site was within the open countryside for new housing um, and particularly accessibility. Um, And if we have a look then at the... um, the conclusions, paragraph 23, the inspector says there would be significant conflict with the objectives of the development plan to locate new homes um, with ready access to services and facilities. Uh, and that's because it was a village and it wasn't one of the main settlements. But what's really interesting, if you go to paragraph 27, I acknowledge the council has already recently given consent for exactly the same scale of development in the same village. So the appellants probably thought they were going to be okay, but this was social rented and shared ownership. It was an exception scheme. Now you'd say, well, if it was sustainable for the affordable, it was probably sustainable for um, the market housing. But look at the last part over the page, making clear there was a lack of um, identifier. There was a shortfall in the affordable housing. So shortfall in the affordable housing gets permission for that scheme. Market housing, but with affordable in it, rejected it can't be because the settlement was unsustainable it's just that there was a shortfall in the five land supply in my opinion we just look at the conclusions then this paragraph is is my sort of bugbear paragraph 12 of the framework says that if the planning application conflicts with an up-to-date plan you shouldn't normally grant planning permission really that sounds remarkably like trying to upset the legislative provision isn't it surely it's the development plan and material considerations indicate otherwise not this sentence it was no doubt put into a piece back benches or i'm off on one now back benches just to say if it's not in an up-to-date plan you can't have planning permission it's not a plan dictated system it's a plan led one but luckily the inspector does refer to the second sentence in paragraph 12 also states local authorities may take decisions that depart from the up-to-date development plan yeah they absolutely could like a material consideration like i don't know a housing crisis perhaps that might be a material consideration Paragraph 47 reminds us of the law. It does. Second sentence of paragraph 12 shouldn't be in there. But, you know, I'm not a government minister. That was more than a minute, but it wasn't bad for me. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I was just thinking, thinking there's never a time of the day. I know that the answer is just to devalue the minute. Um, <laughs> on that note, uh, over to you, Mary and Jenny. <laughs> Thank you very much, Charlie. So, Jenny, by way of introduction, You grew up in Derry before going across the water, as they say, to study town and country planning at Manchester, gaining a BA honours degree. You then uh, also uh, secured a a Bachelor of Planning, and you're obviously a member of the MRTPI now. You started your career in the public sector, which I suspect many listeners will not uh, necessarily be aware of. So I gather you started as a planning officer uh, in development control at Blackpool before then going on to work in Macclesfield um, and then eventually uh, 
entering the private sector, working initially for Westbury Homes in their Northwest Division, having been recruited by one Keith George, a name that some of us who are old enough, not you, Charlie, will remember. (laughs) Uh, You went on to be the planning director and the managing director of Harrow Estates uh, until that was sold back into Red Row. You then took over from the late Keith George when he retired at, at Taylor Wimpy, becoming their planning director. Within a year of that, you had taken on the land promotional role. You then joined the UK board. Since then, your role has expanded and you've become responsible over time for uh, both short-term land acquisitions and strategic land, technical design, production, procurement and logistics. You're currently the group operations director and you're also the interim divisional chair of the Northeast, Northwest and Yorkshire division. And you also, have, in, in between all of that, you have found time to be a non-executive director of the Peabody Trust. I mean, wow. May I just say, wow. Wow. Um, I think that's a very inspiring journey. I think it's particularly interesting to, uh, to note the variety of, uh, of jobs. Uh, and I hope lots of our younger viewers uh, will be inspired by that. So my first question really is, what did you learn uh, most from those first two public sector jobs that you had in Blackpool and Macclesfield? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that the sort of the public sector um, local authority rules give me a great grounding. And, you know, when I look back um, at the you know Blackpool, at that time, it was a Labour-led um, authority. Um, it's a densely urbanised area. It was starting to really get to grips with sort of regeneration requirements very economically uh, challenged, going through really significant change in its sort of economic base versus Macclesfield, um, which was true blue um, Tory-led authority, a greenbelt bound, um, a development plan in place, um, a very uh, um, well-informed and well-numerated local population. So in Blackpool, um, you know, I think one of my enduring uh, sort of memories and skill that I learned there was about negotiation and also just how fundamentally important planning is as an economic lever uh, for you know, for urban areas and, uh, and for planning authorities. So, you know, the mantra was if someone comes and they have any intention at all uh, of investing in Blackpool, even if it's not quite right, that we sat down and negotiated with them and we helped um, and, in- and enabled applicants to deliver um, planning consent that we felt then could be supported. And, you know, there's some uh, really, you know, sort of the urban myth. Um, I was in Blackpool when um, the uh, chief planner uh, reported to planning committee that the big one and uh, the roller coaster would have no uh, material impact on the, um, on, on the Blackpool skyline. And you can see it from the motorway as far away as Leyland. So, you know, there were, were definitely some twisting around um, to get, uh, get economic leverage. Um, Macclesfield was very different. Um, it was a much more academic um, sort of grounding. And, you know, as Paul and, uh, and the, the other um, cases have studied, um, uh, referred to today, the care with which we had to build um, planning committee reports started to become really very apparent. And, and also that was sort of getting into the mid to late uh, 90s when um, there was a lot more litigation. And um, my first mm. real um, sort of brush with um, quite um, detailed um, enforcement, going to court, um, all the various orders. Um, that was the time that um, a number of authorities like Macclesfield were battling with um, uh, conversions, barn conversions that were barn conversions. <laughs> and, the, uh, and the chief planner at the time took those very seriously. Um, so there was a very much of an enabling view at, at Blackpool. And the summary of Macclesfield was, I learned about a hundred different ways to say no uh, to, uh, to development. And, uh, and the balance was an excellent balance, you know, for a young planner that enabling urbanization versus the constraining sort of rural policies and greenbelt um, policies. Uh, you know, and I thought it put me in a really good position then to, to move on. And I've been using those skills through all of my career. Well, uh, excellent. Uh, and obviously, it's a very great effect, if I may say so. So so what attracted you to the private sector? And, and why in particular did you go, as it were, client side in what m- must have been, uh, you know, a very male orientated um, house building sector at the time? Um, honestly, it never occurred to me at the time mm. that it was going to be male dominated. That was something that a, 
um, sort of I became aware of um, much, uh, much later. Um, after, you know, six, seven years um, in local government, I, I you know, I, I thought that I had got a good grounding sort of in my mm. planning knowledge. I was enjoying it. But um, frankly, sort of the, the career conveyor belt was running rather slowly, Mary. Yeah. And, you know, and I was keen to uh, to stretch out at the time. I wasn't married. I had no children. You know, I was uh, able to take a risk. And in, in those days, you know, it's fair to say that um, moving out of local government would have been perceived um, as a as a risk. I did consider consultancy and, you know, I had come to know quite a, a number of really good consultants. But what really did appeal to me was the whole life, the whole project um, sort of opportunity um, on client side. Um, and house building is something that, you know, I've always been particularly interested in and um, sort of residential um, development. And I did my thesis at university on housing regeneration in Northern Ireland. So, you know, it, it was something that I had an affinity with. And I applied um, at a time when house builders were really starting to struggle with the planning system and um, planners were becoming really quite highly valued. And so, you know, really good, really good timing. Excellent. And what does diversity look like in your sector now, do you think? Um, it's moved on um, a great deal. Um, you know, I uh, reflect back on, you know, those male dominated mm. days, you know, going into going into a meeting, going into a function, going into a planning committee, um, you know, very male dominated. So I think that we've got a really strong position now on gender balance. Um, many of um, the house building sector have got strong um, uh, sort of women um, in their uh, in their boards, and, and whilst I'm flattered um, to be, you know, sort of identified as a as a leading woman, I'm not alone. Um, and there are, you know, many highly performing women now um, in the house building sector. I think it's important now that we embed that. Um, it's it, you know we've got a good foundation, but it does need to be built. Um, we seem to do really well um, at the higher levels. We also do really well at intake, and the graduate intakes across the sector are. Yeah, um, 50 50 um, sort of female male which is a great start but but there is you know that um, and I think that we see this in a lot of sectors um, sort of the mid uh, mid managerial level is is more difficult so maternity policies return to mm. work policies effectively ensuring you could to go on site and for there to be facilities for for females um, without it, it, it being considered a big issue on ethnic diversity I think there's a lot uh, for us to still do um, you know, I would like to get the uh, the sector to a place where we are reflective of the communities within which we build, and I think there's a there's a long way for us to to go there. Um, flexible working, agile working uh, will help. I think around ethnic diversity, there is a a real challenge and a job for us to do around our reputation, and that would be both we are cyclical or we're perceived as a highly cyclical sector, so perhaps less secure. Um, than other sectors for, you know, for aspirational young people. I think, too, um, you know, it would be the big elephant in the room not to admit that there's some sort of trust um, issues um, around sort of reputation and the way the sector conducts itself. I do hope that the way that the sector be, uh, behaved and performed and contributed to the community effort during the pandemic will help change some of those perceptions. And um, so from an, an ethnicity uh, perspective, I think, um, we've got a we've got a long way to go, um, but the uh, you know the early signs are really are really really strong. What's most important is that we maintain that commitment now to both gender and uh, and ethnic diversity. Okay, thank you. And um, just moving on to uh, the government's reforms, I'd be very interested to understand what your views are on the practical consequences of government's desire. Uh, to make the allocation of land in a development plan akin to the grant of an outline planning permission and, and whether, based on your experience, you think that will shorten the timetable for the delivery of housing? I think I would have to admit straight up to a very healthy dose of scepticism um, on, on, the, uh, on, on the speed. Um, first of all, uh, any change, even if it turns out to be a fantastic uh, positive change, will create um, a sort of an investment hiatus. Might not be particularly long. It might not be particularly deep. But but even small um, sort of stutters like the referendum, where you know some of the um, house builders came out of the market in land investment, 
a few months had quite significant in, uh, effects on volume if, if you if you look back so anything that starts to sort of change um, or affect our investment uh, behavior um, even if ultimately it's good generally results in um, you know a delay or a, a, a slowdown in, um, in, in housing delivery even if it's a couple of years uh, delayed so that's one um, thing I'm not convinced, um, albeit I would love to be paying you guys less and not having such long uh, local plan uh, sort of examinations. Uh, but the, the one thing that I think is really important in those examinations is that what is allocated is deliverable because there are you know, significant um, tracts of land that are allocated without the level of rigour and sort of interrogation that I think is needed. That, that then remain undelivered. And that's frustrating for everybody. It's frustrating for the local authority and the resources they invested. It's frustrating for the local communities who have been through, you know, all of the um, engagement and, you know, sort of the emotional roller coaster that goes with, um, with development. So I'm concerned that this um, sort of allocation becoming an outline means that actually to, for that to affect a change, a huge amount of work would have to be invested at the allocation stage. Um, and even if that was outside the planning system, it would still have to be undertaken by the promoter um, or the developer or the landowner, uh, which means that um, the, you know, the level of investment is likely to be paced to the level of certainty of being delivered. So um, I'd love to see um, the, the development plan system speed up, but what we have to um, accept now is um, investment um, needs planning and technical certainty. And planning certainty um, will only come with technical certainty. Um, and certainly if it becomes transactional, if an allocation becomes an outline and that triggers, for example, option agreements, then the, um, the investor or the developer will want to get a substantial level of uh, technical rigor. So I think that we, we are going to find, you know, that that's, um, a, a really lovely uh, goal, but, but it's actually really difficult to execute in real in real life. Absolutely, and could end up actually um, delaying delivery uh, yes. whilst um, banks, uh, investors adjust to a, 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 a different way of working. Um, Absolutely, indeed, indeed. Okay, well, so that sort of sinks into my. Um, my my next question um, before I, I, I open this up to the others, which is, are there too few players in the house building sector? And, and what can government and indeed yourself uh, and industry do to encourage more SMEs? I mean, government plainly thinks that there are not enough players in the market. I mean, there's not. Um, I can, you know, wholeheartedly agree. Um, you know, the more competition and um, the better for um, the consumer the better for the community, better for landowners. You know, from a developer's point of view, um, then uh, you know, differential. You know, think of a sales USP. All of those things, um, you know, are, uh, are are brought on by a greater uh, competition, and it's not something that, that I fear at all. Um, but what uh, what I would sort of look back at is well. Why are SMEs or have SMEs left um, the sector? And you know, every, with every recession that we've had, um, you know, that I've been sort of familiar with, um, particularly the '90s, um, and then you know, so into the end of the '90s and the noughties, um, it's sort of investment risk, planning risk. Um, you know, so why would you, as a small investor, doesn't matter what uh, you know what sector, take such a significant risk? Uh, when you can invest it somewhere else for potentially a lesser uh, a lesser return, but a more secure risk, and that's the decision that a lot of SMEs make. The the barriers to entry, the cost of being in our planning system from a residential point of view is really very very high. Um, there there are other uh, you know there are other issues. I think you know the Great Recession and the ability to access finance um, certainly an issue. The fact that often um, you have to self-fund the planning stage, which yeah. you know, the cost of a planning application, yeah. the cost of reports, the fact that um, the timelines can be uncertain, the time in section 106, if we end up at an appeal, the length of the appeal, you know, so from a small investment mm. uh, perspective, the planning system represents quite a, a significant risk. You know, there are rewards, clearly, if, um, if you can um, circumvent and navigate that. And so it does tend to 
um, you know, sort of back the larger, uh, more resource and skilled. I think the other point and is that we don't allocate small sites anymore. They tend to be lumped into a generic urban capacity. Mm. Um, the allocation of large sites because of the need to invest in social and um, highway infrastructure is really attractive from a, a, a political perspective, and it ensures that you know, that necessary social infrastructure can be delivered, whereas small sites don't have that benefit. Yeah. So I would really like to see sort of local plans going back to allocating small sites because, you know, large builders are not going to buy 25, you know, 50 no. unit sites. Those will go to SMEs. And the more that that market can be stimulated, then the less planning risk that's involved and the more appetite that they will have for sustainable growth. Agreed. And, and uh, I mean, for my part, I also think that um, the idea that, uh, another another solution is um, the expansion of uh, permitted development rights because somehow that avoids you know uh, the need to make a, a an application is is a, is another myth because that's uh, often actually more complicated than just a a, a straightforward uh, I say straightforward obviously a planning application involves a lot of documents and therefore a lot of cost. Okay, well thank you very much for the moment. I, I might come back. I might come back to you with with a bit more. But meanwhile, Chris, can I uh, ask you what your question is, please, for Jenny? You can. Now, Jenny, I was going to ask you a question about house building, but um, that's predictable, isn't it? But you know what? I'm going to, I want to, I'm going to ask you a different question, um, more about your career, if you don't mind me asking, because we've got a lot of people watching. Um, now, think of uh, a young woman uh, who's a planner watching this program and thinking to herself, I would love to be in Jenny Daly's position. Okay? There'll be plenty of people doing that. What skills do you need to get from... The, the planning officer at, at uh, Blackpool to the amazing position you're in. What are the skills that you need? Oh, that is a hard one. I mean, from a skill position, you know, I think the planning career for me, you know, I still, you know, cut me down the middle and it'll still say planner. And I, and I do love it. I'm not as close to the sharp end, you know, listening to the cases um, this afternoon, not as quite as close um, as I uh, as I used to be, um, because it's multifaceted. I mean, just think of the breadth and depth that uh, you know that you can get into. You know, urban, you know, rural specialisms. You know, whether it's con uh, conservation, you know, listed building. Um, you know, the it, it's just you know the the options are so um, significant, which gives you a huge opportunity to effectively change your career. Um, breadth, uh, go for breadth. Um, so, you know, much more pluralistic approach or go for depth. So, you know, become a real specialist and um, the multitasking, the ability to read across all forms of um, sort of the technical elements that uh, that go into development, I think, is a is a huge skill. Um, but, but probably, you know, sort of stepping back, it's, well, you know, don't back down from a challenge, um, you know, the uh, all you can do is fail and you know and I've had some real bloopers you know there's a few developments that frankly you know um I, if I knew then what I know now they wouldn't have you know they wouldn't have happened so we're always learning everybody's always learning but yeah you know I think planning gives a huge skill set which then can be put um to use right across a range of uh, a range of uh, career op um, options, uh, unlike almost any um, uh, other profession that I've come across. I, I couldn't agree with you more about don't be afraid. You hear this from top people all the time. Don't be afraid to fail. Uh, you've got to take these risks, haven't you? Rather than just sit in your comfort zone and don't go out of it. Have you, have you tested yourself sometimes? Have you done things that were, were outside your comfort zone? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I would, if there was one thing that I would say to young people, you know, listening to, you know, people like me sort of um, uh, wittering on, um, when when you're reflecting on your career, it all seems so smooth and so planned and, and I did this and that led to that and, you know, and, and that this plan was just beautiful and, and that I followed it perfectly. It didn't, it didn't work like that. You know, things went wrong. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't always do well. Um, you know, I, I would uh, challenge, you know, myself and occasionally um, it wouldn't quite, it wouldn't quite work out. I stayed overly long in some roles because, you know, maybe uh, overly loyal, my family circumstances, you know, just weren't quite right. So, you know, don't get overly fixated on these lovely retrospective smooth careers. 
you know, take it a chunk at a time. And the worst thing that can happen is you go back a little bit. And sometimes, you know, the better part of valor is strategic retreat and, you know, a retreat and go forward again. Uh, that would, you know, that would be my sort of most um, sort of significant advice to young people. You know, don't believe all the hype. Um, it, it was a rocky road for everyone. Um, and, you know, and take your time. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jenny. Charlie, what's your question for Jenny? I've got a question and a half, actually. So the, the main question is, if there was one improvement um, you can make to the planning system, what would that be? But a specific improvement that an audience question has asked is, is what are your thoughts on the um, funding of infrastructure in particular? Is, is Section 106 and SIL fit for purpose? Or it, what about the infrastructure levy? Is that a, uh, going to be an improvement? So your general, general point and then the specific question that one of our audience members have asked. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so tempting to tinker, isn't it? <laughs> and just sort of fiddle with all the little bits that have caught you out in the uh, in the past. But like the overriding uh, point is resources, and you know, I know that that you guys and a, a number of your guests have, have touched on the point. But you know, you can't expect the process to deliver. It's people that deliver through the process, and without the people, you know, that are appropriately skilled and in appropriate numbers, it doesn't matter how perfect um, our regulatory system is. It doesn't matter how beautifully crafted the process is. It's not going to deliver what we need from it. And it will always be frustrated. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big lobbyist um, on the let's get proper resources um, into, uh, you know, our planning authorities, into the um, inspectorate, um, into, you know, the private sector and uh, to support industry and, uh, and the economy. Um, and, you know, and there's we're, we've got so much to do, um, I think, in that respect. Um, in terms of Section 106 uh, cell and the infrastructure levy, I would have to go with at this point. It sounds quite uh, quite weak of me, you know. Better the devil, you know, because at least you know the devil. Yeah. Um, the you know the infrastructure levy worries me because it's set on a percentage of GDV, which is a nice easy math to make, but actually the biggest challenges in delivering uh, large scale uh, sites is infrastructure and the infrastructure burden, whether that's community or linear infrastructure, and actually, you know, the real ugly muck and bullet stuff, which is it's what's in the ground. It's how challenging it is technically to deliver. So the GDV is an output of the sales environment, but it, it ignores all of the discounts and the, um, the, the sort of the debits that need to come off. Section 106 um, is challenging, but it at least does give a balance of uh, for an authority to prioritize um, the issues that are you know, most, uh, most important to them. I think, sadly, um, the, the sort of squeezable um, commodity has been affordable housing, and I think that is really regrettable, and, you know, and it does bother me. But um, if the other uh, elements are required in order to deliver development and mitigate its impact, uh, then that's a balance that the local authority uh, need to make. So, you know, um, I remember sitting in a room with the HBF somewhere around, you know, 2008 and thinking Section 106 is terrible. What, what could we, uh, you know, what could we um, sort of look at to replace it? Um, and do you know, Mary, we were saying the things that you'd like to change. I think I'd like to go back in time and, and change that and say, do you know what? Actually, let's work harder to make Section 106 work. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Paul, what's your question for Jenny? Yeah, for, first of all, apologies for disappearing off camera, Jenny, but it did occur to me that my, my wife, having got my Irish shirt down from the wardrobe, if I didn't wear it and she tuned in and I was speaking to somebody from Derry, then frankly, my life wouldn't be worth living. Um, so my, my question, Jenny, is um, uh, you, you're a non-exec director at the Peabody Trust. Why did you decide to go on that parallel route as well as the TW route? Yeah, um, I mean, I think um, everything in its time, but I'll, I'll come back to the timing of it. Um, I mean, they're a fantastic um, organisation. You know, the the importance of the delivery of high quality um, sort of affordable housing um, is you know sort of, is, um, nationwide, but but in London to be able to do it at the quality and the design quality and care, and um, the Peabody invests in it was you know was really very attractive. We have a whole place um, sort of philosophy. It's not just it's not just affordable housing. It's not just the design of the property or even the design of the place. It's then how do you support the community within it? So everything from you know, sort of employment, um, all about social mobility, economic stability, leads to you know sort of improved wellness and 
um, and health, higher educational attainment. You know, it's the whole, um, it's the whole uh, sort of uh, uh, philanthropic approach which George Peabody originally set out to uh, to establish, and it's been true to those, um, uh, you know, to those um, uh, starting position for you know like two hundred years um, or, or nearly. Um, so. Excellent organisation. Um, I was beyond delighted um, when I was uh, sort of called and asked what I uh, consider it. The timing of being asked, um, actually, though, was was important. Um, I had left um, sort of Red Row Harrow Estates um, 2014. I had a board position there. That does give a, you know, a certain degree of um, sort of um, education, if nothing else, around governance and how to run uh, a business. And my first role as I sort of moved into uh, Taylor Wimpy was as a the um, the UK director of planning, so a very specialist uh, role um, supporting the sort of the function. But it wasn't a board seat at that point. So at the time that I was invited to join the Peabody board, I also didn't have a board role, and and so the governance opportunity. Um, uh, to maintain th that sort of skill um, and was was really attractive. And then the final point was, you know, have you looked at the board? Um, you know, they were uh, uh, and are, you know, a, a really highly credible. Um, you know, it's, it feels quite, um, you know, quite flattering to, to enter the room with them. Thank you. Excellent. Sasha, your question. Thank you, Mary. Yes, Jenny, I want to ask you something topical. Um, how how is COVID changing your model and your product? What what are you thinking internally and discussing about how COVID will change how Taylor Wimpy produces? Um, I think the uh, you know, we're a, we're a uh, predominantly uh, family housing um, uh, builder, mostly in you know sustainable urban extensions. We do have some um, sort of urban. Um, and inner urban development, particularly in uh, in London. Um, so, you know, we're seeing a lot of pull at the moment from um, from customers who are wanting to move out of more dense um, sort of urban settings. Um, the placemaking, I think, is particularly um, sort of important, and we've been working really hard on that for a number of years, and you know, trying to um, sort of update and improve and have a continuous improvement. Um, sort of approach to to design so not just the home but you know the the disposition of space the usability and quality of space um, around uh, the home is you know is a, is a really big uh, feature environmental strategy um, we have you know, been re refreshing and renewing and updating our environmental strategy because that's becoming extremely important to people um, in, in the home itself uh, we've been you know um, reviewing our um, our house type range, not just because of COVID, but because uh, we've got a lot of regulatory change coming. So things like um, working from home space, and even for um, homes that are small and you know couldn't support a study, using liminal spaces um, sort of really smartly to ensure that there is somewhere um, for you to work from home that doesn't. To, um, take away from um, the, the functionality or the original functionality of the home. So, you know, uh, through spaces between um, sort of living rooms and, and, and kitchens with, you know, completely just up from a socket and a, a sort of Wi-Fi uh, perspective. Gardens have always been uh, very important um, uh, to, you know, to our, to our purchasers. But, but I think the, the more interesting discussion um, is likely around um, centralization, decentralization, um, uh, probably around travel. So um, I think travel uh, connections are still going to be really, really important, but there may be, you know, more elasticity in journey times if people are, are, aren't required to go to their offices five days a week and that drops to, you know, two or three days a week. And then we have to look at, at our own staff. I mean, I'm still working from home and I was going to comment, it's, it's almost refreshing um, to see people lie in suits and, you know, getting out and, a, out and about but the way that um, we organise our offices and, you know, that we sort of continue this uh, sort of agile and flexible working for our for our staff as well is, is, is an important reflection uh, for us to maintain coming out of COVID. Thank you. I'm sure you're not alone in, alone in that respect. Um, can I uh, um, come back on, on a, a question that, that um, someone in the audience has, has asked? Um, What's the house builder's uh, attitude towards build to rent? Okay. Um, I mean, build to rent is a different tenure. 
Um, mm. If I was to be really very commercial about it, it's not competitive. Um, so it's it doesn't have a you know detrimental impact on our for sale um, product. Um, the uh, you know I think it's about the quality um, and delivery. Um, you know the bill to rent um, sort of in in the last um, sort of decade has been fairly focused around dense urban areas. It's been almost exclusively a sort of central yeah. uh, or you know sort of London, Greater London um, uh, sort of tenure. But but it is now moving out into uh, single family housing. The important thing for me, you know, if I was looking at it as a sort of a co-investment um, opportunity, is that we have um, similar goals, a similar uh, quality. We want to offer a similar quality and experience to the consumer, whether that's for rent um, or uh, or for purchase. Um, but I think you know the, there's a there's a really useful um, sort of symbiosis um, between uh, between the tenures. Mm. And uh, I mean, the other thing that's happened this week, of course, is the announcement in relation to first homes. I know that's uh, very new and there are some transitional arrangements and it, it's not going to um, hit hit schemes immediately. Um, have you got any thoughts on on first homes? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think probably the. The, the main concern I have, and probably reflecting this from that sort of social housing uh, sort of background, is, you know, I, I do have some concerns about the, the impact that sort of 25% of the affordable housing and sort of um, whether it's the, the uh, sort of the commercial um, outturn or um, sort of in, um, in uh, sort of the units themselves, Will, will affect a reduction in social housing. And I think that that's going to be very difficult for authorities that have high demand for social rented or affordable rent um, homes to be diverting um, sort of 25% of their requirement into a, um, effectively a, dis, uh, a discounted market uh, product. From a market point of view, uh, I mean, discount is, is clearly really welcome and um, it, it will it will be of benefit to, you know, to many people. And I, I wouldn't um, sort of dis, uh, disagree with that in any way. The, the one concern that I have is unless there's a sufficient quantity then of first homes or um, uh, discounted market homes um, in perpetuity, it, it can become a bit of a mobility trap. So shared ownership, actually, where you can staircase out mm. um, over time um, is a much more attractive mm. option. Um, and, you know, uh, mobility, social mobility, economic mobility does, you know, does require people to move home. And I just worry ever so slightly that if we don't get a sufficient quantum, um, that, that it actually could, could trap uh, people in a home that no longer mm. sits their requirements. I also think just coming back to the conversation we were having before about, you know, government wants uh, more SMEs. We're talking about um, smaller sites aren't being allocated. Um, all of this add, does add to the complexity of trying to deliver on the ground schemes, the, the, the sort of 20, 20 plus or 20 to 50 uh, plus. It, it, it all becomes a lot more complicated when you've got these differing increasingly differing uh, divisions of affordable housing and you've yes, got to acom accommodate them all on on a site yes and yeah. then uh, mary add um, all of the building regulation changes as well oh. and and you know all the uh, the optionality that will come with that uh, you know it is it's it's a, it's a tough call yeah yeah well one of our other viewers is also saying you know hang on a minute what about sangs what about phosphates what about nitrates all of, all of these things um Thanks. are an additional burden on on the house building um industry anyway thank you very much jenny you're for uh, your insight and for your time today um i'm sure you're a great inspiration to many of our listeners back thank to you, you charlie thanks very much huge thank you for me too jenny it really has been fascinating um, before we wrap up, we've got an uh, announcement to make. Over to you, Sasha. Thank you, Charlie. Yeah, I just want to say, I want to mark, have we got planning news for you, and mark Christopher Lockhart Mummery's retirement. I mean, obviously, he's a massive, massive presence at the planning bar and a real inspiration to most of us. He's been in practice since 1971, so he's just had his 50th anniversary. Can you imagine and he's also been in silk for 35 years. He was head of chambers also of Breams Buildings when they merged with Eldon Chambers to form Landmark. He was instrumental in bringing about Landmark. But far more than longevity and achievements, I just wanted to say something about him as a person, because 
He's been brilliant, but he's also the most humane, compassionate, mm. reasonable, kind person. And he's just a complete credit to the planning bar. And I just wanted to mark on publicly that all of us, irrespective of our sets and our careers, what an extraordinary man he's been. And he'll be much, much missed in by the profession. Thanks, Ash. I would not be here if it wasn't for Christopher. He gave me my big breaks right at the very start, without which I wouldn't be able to um, pick up the traction I did early on in my career. And I know very good to others of us too. So, bravo. I remember doing an inquiry against him in Kent, highly charged, and he got up to start his cross-examination in the days when you could stand up. And he had this great, very grand lectern, and he managed to spill a whole load of water. And I dashed out and got a mop and handed him the mop. And much to the amusement of all the locals, it was a real icebreaker. He started mopping up the floor. Well <laughs> done, Lockhart Mummery. <laughs> what a complete legend. Well, um, there we are. Um, let's say huge, um, huge respect to Christopher. We wish him a very happy retirement, but we hope we'll get to see him nonetheless um, outside of inquiries uh, on, on social occasions. Um, now with that, um, that's the end of whatever series it is. Is it the fourth series? I think if I give the fourth. Um, it's not the end of the series. It's a half-term break. Half-term, but a rather long half-term break. Yes. Largely thanks to my decision to go to Portugal, <laughs> for which <laughs> thank you for your patience. So we will be back on the uh, 24th of June. Um, with another lineup of guests taking you through to, to mid to late July. Um, so please do join us then. Uh, we'll let you know who our guests will be very shortly. We've got some really uh, exciting names uh, lined up for you. Until then, enjoy the sunshine. May it last. Have a good bank holiday weekend and we'll see you soon. Take Thank care. You, Jenny. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks, Jenny. Good night. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs>